Hello, and welcome to Slush, a publishing podcast. I'm your host, Eric Harden, and on this week's episode, I have the immense pleasure of speaking with a really fascinating person who works in subsidiary rights. Her name is Hannah Babcock, and at the time of recording this episode, she was a rights and co-editions manager with Scholastic, but she just recently let me know that she accepted a new position, and she will now be, as of like a week from when this podcast episode posts, she will be a rights director at Random House Children's Books. So congratulations to her. I think you'll hear in this episode how absolutely enthusiastic and passionate Hannah is about subsidiary rights. And I think she has a lot of right to be because personally, I think subsidiary rights is probably the coolest department outside of ManEd. Again, this is totally subjective in my opinion, but I've just always found subrights to be a fascinating area of the industry, particularly when it comes to foreign rights, because I love to travel. So I am deeply jealous every time that I hear someone in subrights has gone to Frankfurt or Bologna or any other international fair. But yeah, I had such a wonderful time chatting with Hannah. She's such a fun person to talk to. And this is a really great interview. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Hannah Babcock. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about working in subsidiary rights, Hannah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let's just dive right into the first question. How did you get to this point in your career? Basically, give us a full rundown of your resume. Yeah. So I think probably everyone's going to start their like publishing career talk this way. But obviously, when I was a kid, I loved reading. I was obsessed with books and I really used it as a way to escape from the world. I was a pretty weird kid and I feel like I kind of went into this world with my best friend who we'd like stay up all night reading chapters of books back and forth together. So I always kind of knew I wanted to be in books. She actually ended up being a literature teacher, which of course she did. But yes, so I always knew that I wanted to be in books and I always knew that I wanted to do something with publishing, but I kind of like had no idea what I was getting into, which is I feel like most people have that same reaction. But I kind of had this idea as a naive child of really wanting to be a Kirkus reviewer or something like that, which is such a like weird, far-fetched little idea for a kid. But I that's like what I saw in all of the books. So of course I was like, oh my God, I'd love to just read books all the time and tell people what I think about them because that's what I'm doing anyway. So I did kind of, I guess it's a sort of typical trajectory for someone who works in publishing. I went into college. I went into a very typical generic literature program. And I have to say that that I think was not very defining for me to have gotten my first internship in publishing. I think it was just sort of that I was really enthusiastic and people were like, oh, okay, like I'll give you an internship because you love books and that's what we're here for. So cut to my first internship or well, my only internship at Foundry Literary and Media, which is now dissolved. But I actually worked at this agency for about a year as an intern and I did all sorts of random stuff. I worked under an agent and she was one of the only ones who actually did have a slush pile, which I I love the title of this podcast is slush because I deeply delved into it. And yeah, so like there would be full days where I'd just be like combing through manuscripts on manuscripts, just trying to decide if anything was a gem. And the other thing that I loved to do was I was at the front desk all the time. And I would talk to authors when they came in and get really excited about the sales of new books and stuff. And I had someone at the agency come up to me and she was extremely well-intentioned and super kind for saying this, but she said that there was a 
position open for a scout. And she said I should apply for it. I say well-intentioned and I have no judgment whatsoever for this agent because scouting is such a shrouded little part of the industry that nobody knows about that I'm sure that she was just like, oh, scouts, that is a part of the industry and like, I don't know what it takes to be in it. So like, try. So I applied and of course, a full-fledged scout is someone who's had many, many years industry experience. So I was not. (laughs) And what a scout does before I get into the other part of my journey is that essentially they're the eyes and ears for foreign publishers on the ground in the U.S. So they're reading all of the different manuscripts and projects that people have on the U.S. market and giving intel to their foreign clients. So everyone has, you know, one client in Germany or one client in France or however. And it's a very people-based job. And so I think that that's why she wanted me to be up for this position. But then I sort of started looking into scouting and I thought it was such a cool idea because that's what I had wanted to do when I was a kid is read all the books, tell people about the books. So when I had my interview with John Baker, who I eventually worked for, one of the things that ended up getting me that position was that I was so excited about scouting that I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that you guys read everything. That's such a cool position to be in in the industry. And so, yeah, I ended up working for John for two and a half years. It was just as he was just getting his business up and running. And yeah, it was a whirlwind. If you ever want to know everything about every American publisher, you just go into scouting and you try to figure out everything because there's a lot. It's a crash course. So I did that for two and a half years. And then I will say that scouting is very intense. I know a lot on this podcast, you talk about work-life balance. There is none. So scouting, you read every single night. You'll usually read a manuscript a night, a whole manuscript, and then write a reader's report the next day. It's very exhausting. So I pivoted more towards the right selling side of things. So where you know, I'd work with one publisher, one agency, and sell all of the books that they have. So my next position was at Abrams. I was an assistant rights manager, and I did just that. I started selling children's books for the first time, whereas on the scouting side, I had done only adult books. And it was a whole new world for me. Selling is sort of one of those positions that you really, you sort of learn the ropes as you go along, which I guess is most of public, honestly. But yeah, and then two years after that, I had had a friend who worked in rights and editorial simultaneously at Abrams, and he said, oh my gosh, there is this amazing job at Scholastic that you would be perfect for. So that is how I ended up at Scholastic as a rights and coditions manager. So sorry, that was extremely long-winded, but I hope it was somewhat No, it was completely helpful and not long-winded at all and really fascinating, especially I didn't even know that scouting was a thing that happened. So thank you so much for giving us that at least brief explanation of what scouting is, because like you said, it is definitely shrouded in mystery. I had no idea it even existed. So thank you. Moving to the next question, what are some favorite projects and titles that you've worked on so far in your career? So this is kind of an interesting question because for me, I'm selling all of the books. So I'm reading lots and lots of things. And it's been really like varied, the things that I've loved to work on. So I was thinking about this question and I think I'm going to give you like one favorite thing from each position I've worked in. And the first one I'll say is that when I was scouting, I mean, again, it's a really cool job where you get to see things before they're published and like 
as kind of a newbie to the industry, I was very much like, oh my gosh, I get to see things before they even like touch other hands. I mean, that was very naive of me because of course it's out on submission with like a million people. But in any case, I was very excited because I had read Tara Westover's Educated before it came out. And like, as people were getting really excited about it and before it was in the hands of the publishers who bought it. And like, it was so cool because I got to recommend it, write a reader's report and recommend it to all my foreign clients. So that just blew my mind as a newbie. I was so excited to be able to just have the cool thing that always felt so cool to me. So yeah, so that was definitely a scouting highlight for me. I'll say that when I worked at Abrams, I did get to work on selling the audio rights for Good Neighbor. And that's a book about Mr. Rogers. And it was very, very sweet. And yeah, it was just one of my favorite business interactions because it was with a very small audio publisher who's very sweet and hand sold the book kind of to him. And he was he was just genuinely the nicest person. He called me on the phone. And he was like, I really have to have this book. I hope you know. I have a personal contact with LeVar Burton and I want him to read it. And then, of course, LeVar Burton did read it and he was up for an audio that year, which I ended up going to the ceremony. It was such a cool thing to be able to do and to be like, I sold the rights to this cool book. So yeah, definitely I love when those moments happen. And that was a pivotal moment for me as like a right seller doing audio rights. And then I'll say at Scholastic, one of my favorite things is working with Dogman because it's such a huge bestseller. It's like the biggest graphic novel series of all time. It's like so big and so cool. And, you know, I get to be the one to say, I sold Dogman and Afrikaans. And like, that's just kind of a neat feeling when you work on books in this capacity to be like, I made a small difference in this world because I sold these rights. Yeah, those are excellent books to have sold. So congrats. And also, I do have to say, Educated was the very first audiobook I ever listened to. So that book has a special place in my heart. So thank you so much for helping to discover that. Okay, moving to the next question. And this is kind of a more abstract one. I mean, you can take it however you will. But how would you describe the work that your department does? Okay, yeah. So that is, it feels weird to say that this is one of the toughest questions that you ask because, you know, you think, of course, I work with these books and I do this work all the time. I wouldn't know how to describe this. It's such a like multifaceted position that I kind of had to take some time to think about this. But how I usually think of it is that we're kind of almost doing the work of agents, but for a bunch of different publishers. So I know you had talked about defining specific terms like submissions and agents and stuff like that. Those are also all things that we do, but it's from the publisher instead of from the agency. So, you know, we as a subrights team that works under Scholastic, we sell all of the books that Scholastic has the rights to in the head contract. And we pitch them all over the world and we pitch them to audio publishers and we pitch them to large print publishers and we pitch them to merchandising publishers and, you know, film companies and all sorts of things. So I would say that, yeah, our work is kind of akin to what an agent does, although also the caveat there, because there are so many, is that agents also tend to have foreign rights departments and they do a similar position to us. It's just that they do it with I wouldn't say less materials, but less polished things. Thank you for that description. And I, I'm wondering, I think this is true. I think I know that this is true, but you only have rights to sell when 
the company purchases them. So like if the author decides not to sell world rights to their book, then they have the right to sell those rights to other publishers, probably through their agent. Is that right? Yeah. So that that is correct. So yeah, any editors out there listening, like get the world all language rights, please. Because yes, the head contract is the king and we live and die by it because anything in that contract that we need to sell is all in the sub rights section of things. And yeah, we always study the contract before we do anything because otherwise, of course, we would get in trouble and you can't sell rights for things that you don't have the rights to. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. Okay. Next question. What are your favorite and least favorite parts of your job? So also a fantastic question. The favorite part of my job, uh, which I'm sure is the same for anyone who does the international selling portion of subrights, is traveling. I love to travel. I love being able to see my friends who I've made in other territories. And I love just getting to know my clients. It's so interesting hearing what people from all around the world have to say about your books, education, literature in general. They are just so fascinating to listen to. And they give you such an interesting perspective on the books that you already have and the things that could be coming up. So I love that part of it. I I mean, the little kid in me is singing every time I take a plane to go to Frankfurt, which is one of our biggest book fairs that we go to, our biggest convention. And yeah, I just... I absolutely love it. I love talking about books all day. Who doesn't love that? And then I guess the least favorite parts of my jobs. Every job has drawbacks. And I'll say like, you know, some of the things that come with the territory of negotiating are like, you know, it always feels really tough when you lose a sale. It's really hard when you worked really hard for something and then it dissipates like that really sucks. And it also, I mean, as I was saying before, you know, if we go to acquisitions and I'm reading a book and I'm like, oh my God, this could be so good. Like I can see that it would do so well in Germany and Italy and France. Oh my gosh, this would be amazing. And then we don't get the world rights. And then I have to have a soul crushing talk with myself to be like, all right, it's fine. We are going to do great with the other books. It's fine. That also always feels a little bit sad because you get your hopes up and then comes crashing down. But yeah, and I, I think you have, you've talked about this with some other guests as well. This kind of comes with the territory too, is that subrights, again, all of it is very shrouded and like kind of a backwoodsy kind of weird part of the industry. So we don't often like get acknowledged. Not Of course, that totally makes sense. There are three million people who work on each book and all of them are totally valid and wonderful. And yeah, it makes sense. It's just that sometimes when we're like really excited and we've sold 23 languages for a book and we're really hyped up on our end and then like n- nobody knows or cares, that always feels a little disheartening too. But again, these are things that come with the territory. I totally understand. I just want everyone to know about how cool our job is and why we do it. So it's neither here nor there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I I mean, apparently you've heard me say it. It's sometimes disheartening when all of the work you put in doesn't get even like slightly recognized. But, you know, the books are reward enough, I guess. Um, I did want to ask something came up while you were talking. And this is kind of a question that I have for people across the industry, because this is a thing that like sales talks about, editors talk about in their own arenas. But how do you know what book will do well in Germany versus France or any other country like that? 
maybe it's just because that's not the way my brain has to work in my current role, but that just seems so amorphous and like nebulous to me. I don't understand how that could even, it doesn't make sense to me. So please, as much as you can, because that's probably a big question, but please talk to us about how you know what books will work in what countries. Oh my gosh. I'm like so excited that you asked this question because that's the coolest thing about our jobs is that like this is what keeps us learning and growing in sub rights and in rights in general. So the U.S. market, you're talking about trends and things with some other some other guests that you had. And it's the same with foreign publishers. So they'll have all of these crazy trends that don't necessarily follow the American market. And you just have to listen to your clients. That's the biggest thing is listening to what they tell you in those meetings that you have in the big book fairs. So like Frankfurt, Bologna, London, any of the fairs that you go to. So that's the biggest thing. The other thing is you start to develop sort of a relationship with the market in general. So, you know, I know, for instance, that the Netherlands is a big market that I handle that I really appreciate and like to work with. But they tend to do a lot of more traditional style picture books and things. So I would almost never try to pitch them something that is out of that kind of wheelhouse. I mean, I would if they were like, oh, yes, we have decided that we've moved in this strange direction that nobody else has ever done. But they... You know, you sort of get start to get this internal knowledge when you've been working with them for a long time. And that's sort of the beauty of subrights is that you have all of these personal connections with people and you've started to guess what they like. And then you can sort of replicate that as you pitch them books going forward. And it's also just, you know, it's like the U.S. market in the way that you kind of stay on top of news and things as well. So, for instance, you know, of course, if we're going through a weird political cycle here. Sometimes that is interesting to foreign publishers, but in a lot of cases, they don't really care. So you have to like be mindful of that kind of stuff. And things like, you know, we know that probably a book about baseball is probably just not really an international bestseller, but you know, you didn't hear from me. But in any case, so yeah, it is a super complicated question, but you you kind of have to guess based on your relationships with people that you've met from the territory and trends that you sort of hear about through the waves, which is hard, but also interesting. That's what makes it cool. Yeah, I just, and I think this is mostly just because I have never wanted to sell anything. And also I do my little thing in man ed and then, you know, it's very siloed. It's my own thing. So just the idea of having to Maybe I'm overstating it, but like having to be conscious of all of the world's news so you can know what books to sell where is just, I'm okay. <laughs> it's not necessarily for me, but thank you so much for doing it. And to all subrights people, because obviously we need you to be doing that. So thank you. Um, next question for you. What traits and or skills do you feel are necessary for a person looking to work for a subrights department? Okay, so I'm going to also say here that I did a bunch of research before coming to this because I was I really wanted to listen to your podcast, first of all, because I am fascinated by the idea of having this resource for people who are coming up in the industry because it just makes so much sense. So I listened to your podcast, and one of the things that I thought was genuinely like one of the best things that you guys said was that publishing is one of those industries where you can kind of just learn anything, right? I didn't come into publishing with like some 
I know a lot of people do, and this is totally fair and understandable, and it makes sense to go through a publishing program specifically. But I did not do that. That was not my experience. And I came into publishing not having had kind of any foundation for understanding like what a galley is or what, you know, any of these things were. And I fell into foreign rights. I didn't intend to go into foreign rights. It just sort of happened. And I think my answer to this is twofold. It's first of all, anyone can do foreign rights. I didn't think I could sell anything. I'm a very like, I feel like nervous person. I don't want to step on anyone's toes. So like negotiating before I did this job sounded really tough. It's actually so not tough. It's more the relationships with the people. So that's, I think, the biggest thing that you would need in order to be good at sub rights and rights in general is that just having an interest in talking to people about books and sort of getting their feedback on that and building relationships. That is a huge thing. Any of the other stuff that you have skills for, you can totally bring it in and make it a special thing that you know, enhances your sub rights department. Like when I came to Scholastic, I had a pretty big foundation in contracts because I had done a lot of them myself at Abrams. And so that knowledge kind of like helped me to be a better right seller because I, you know, I'd been around it all the time. And I was, of course, looking at all of the different language and like had a lawyer on staff at Abrams that I talked to regularly in a way that I can't at Scholastic. But now I know all of this information. So it's really about tailoring the experience to what you actually like to do. And I think that that's probably a good part of other parts of the industry is just getting into it, loving it and like finding your niche way to make it yours. That's how I think of it as anyway. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. And I do, I do agree, obviously, because I said it before that there's really no department that any human being couldn't do. But I do think that there are certain departments that I don't want to do. (laughs) For instance, never want to sell a book. I love books, but I just don't, I don't see it for myself. And also I don't want to be an editor ever. It's not, it's just, I never want to do it. I think I could do it, you know, hypothetically, but I just don't want to. But I do agree (laughs) that like the basics of any job, pretty much anyone could do. It's just the learning and the training and the mentorship and all of that that helps you become a good insert department person here. Any response to that? (laughs) No, I I totally agree. Like there are definitely parts of the industry that I look at and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is not for me. Could not be me ever. Like I, editors, I'm with you. I like, I, I totally love editors and I appreciate everything that they do. They're a powerhouse of the publishing industry, but my goodness, I could not ever stay up all of those hours to edit and get back to authors and deal with author care in that specific way that they do mm, could not be me. But yeah, I totally agree. There's like, there's just something fundamental about the industry where it's a mentorship industry. You really need to get in there and seek out as many people who can bolster your, you know, learning as possible. And I did that through, you know, any number of things. I met with interns and I mean, we can talk about this a little later, but definitely talk to everyone. That's huge. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, if people listen to this podcast, they're going to think I hate editors. I do not hate editors. I am deeply in awe of editors. I have wonderful friends who are editors. I just know that I could not do their job. And so, like I said, I'm in awe of them. They're wonderful. Anyway, (laughs) moving to the next question, and this is kind of the big question of the episode. Can you walk us through the standard work that you would do in your role for an individual book from start to finish? So like you have one book, you're selling the rights to that book. How does that process work for you? Yeah. So our work, I'm going to try to be as concise as humanly possible. But of course, it 
like any publishing job, it spans multitudes. So the typical process for us is that we go into acquisitions. So my rights director will go into acquisitions. We'll all read material. We'll give insight. We'll say like, oh, I really think that the French market might be interested in this. I don't think it's for Japan, whatever. And we start to get a sense of what the books are on the editorial team's plate so that we can get a sense of what we'll be selling in the future seasons. After acquisitions, usually what happens is that we kind of, you know, we leave it be. We don't hear about it for a little while. You know, it gets picked up or it doesn't, the projects. But also sometimes what happens is that subrights, depending on the house that you're in, subrights, if they're really invested in a project and they're saying like, oh, I know that we're only going for North American rights for this project. But we really think that we could sell world and we would be willing to contribute an advance figure of, say, like $20,000. We think we could sell $20,000 worth of this in rights advances. So could you please try for world all? Sometimes that'll happen. It doesn't happen for all of the books because, you know, it really depends. It has to be something that we're very confident about. And sometimes it'll just happen anyway. Like we get a lot of the world rights, thankfully, for the cool books that we publish. But in any case, so after acquisitions, what ends up happening is that we go to launches, we go to sales conference, and we start sort of building a priority list for what we're going to sell to our clients. So every, like I've, I've already sort of touched on this, but we go to at least two fairs a year. So typically it's going to be Bologna because that is a big children's fair. That happens in like March, April, and then it's going to be Frankfurt in October. So we start building our list for these fairs, and they end up being these things called rights guides, which are selling tools for us that give basic information about each book and sort of like a nice little pitch that we can build off of for our meetings when we see publishers in the fall and spring. So we build our title list based on all of that. And of course, we can't include everything because realistically, some of the things probably are not a priority or won't sell. It does not mean that we will not sell them, and it also does not mean that we won't be pitching them at the fairs. It just means that we have our curated list so that we don't kind of get into the weeds with publishers. We have a finite amount that we're thinking about just right off the bat so that we can focus. So we start building these lists. We get our submission strategy in order. We start submitting projects early enough. And then, of course, we have a strategy. We hold back some submissions if we think it'll be better if we share them in a fair or if, you know, we're selectively submitting things. It really depends. So we do that kind of stuff. And then from there, we pitch them to our sub-agents or we pitch them directly to clients. So sub-agents, I think you've talked about before a little bit, they're called either sub-agents or co-agents. can be a little confusing in publishing because they call a bunch of different stuff the same thing and, you know, same thing, bunch of different stuff. So co-agents, sub-agents are eyes and ears on the ground in each territory. And those are the people who like try to fight for the best offer for us. We don't always work with an agent in a territory. Like I work directly in the Netherlands and I'm sure that you might want to dig into that in a later episode or something. But yeah, effectively we start submitting to everyone and then we start getting an offer. So we start cultivating offers. And this goes like the same process essentially that an editorial team will go into for buying a book. We'll get offers in an auction or in a best bids thing. And then we suss it out and we figure out the best option for the book. And then, yeah, you would think, okay, right, steal over. No, we have contracts, we have approved 
approvals of all of the materials. We have, you know, we talk to the editors to give them deal memos like, oh my gosh, so exciting, new polished deal for XYZ. And then again, because our jobs are very different to a lot of other jobs in publishing. We actually pitch all of the backlist forever and ever and ever. Frontlist, backlist, it's all like a swimming pool of reading. So I never forget about a book. Uh, you're always thinking about it in kind of the back of your mind. If you're like, oh, I know that this German publisher just told me that they're really invested in emotional learning for kids age five to eight. I know 10 books that I could give them. So that's kind of like the life of a book doesn't really finish in our eyes, which is great. And it can also be a tough part of the job because you have to know everything on the list. And Scholastic is massive, absolutely massive. Their front list is massive, but I mean, let alone we're 102 years old. So it's, we're very big. <laughs> um, but yeah. Thank you so much for that really great description. And yeah, I, I will be doing, the goal is to do sections of episodes for each department. So I'll be diving more deeply into subrights in future episodes. I do want to ask though, something that came up while you were talking, is there someone like you in other countries at other publishers doing your job to, to America? Is that a thing as well? Or is it because America is such a powerhouse in the industry that it's kind of a one-way street situation? So this is another really good question, and it's kind of a weird situation. So yes and no. America is one of these weird places where we just have these huge subrights departments that, yeah, get our books all out throughout the world, which is amazing. And there are some territories that do this as well, like the UK, amazing foreign rights teams. Shout out to them. They're awesome. And they, they do the same thing. They sell to us and France and Germany and whoever. And same for Canada and sometimes Latin America and some other territories. But then there are publishing houses that don't have foreign rights teams. So it's just the editors hand selling their books sometimes at fairs. So the tricky thing is, and like, I don't want to mislead anyone here who's interested in that side of things, but typically when we go to fairs, we always get approached by these people who are like, oh my gosh, yes, you are here so that you can buy my picture book. And we are like, no, we do not do that. I appreciate that so much. But if you would just submit it to the editor that you think might be a good fit for it at Scholastic, that would be way better. So people do that all the time. And it's more common, I think, for authors who are working on their own without an agent to be coming to these foreign fairs and to be pitching themselves. So yes, in short, yes, it does happen. It does not happen in the same sort of intense way that it does with the American market. But people are trying to sell their books abroad. It just is not in America, we don't translate as many books into English as we do sell the rights into foreign languages, if that makes sense. It does. Thank you for answering that. Because I've always wondered, I obviously know that there are other industries and other places publishing books, but I, I, I guess I just assume America is the one, <laughs> which is maybe toxic of me, but <laughs> um, I think might also be accurate. So anyway, thank you for answering that. And thank you so much for walking us through the work that you do. And I just want to also, I point this out almost every time, but you're doing all of this work for each individual title, especially in subrights, all of the books every year that are coming out in addition to every single backlist book, potentially. So it's just, can you talk about the scale of everything? Because I do want people to know that this simple description of the job might sound fun and great, and it is fun and great, but it's not as simple as it sounds, I think. Yeah, that is a thousand percent correct. So yeah, when I'm talking about frontless, I'm talking about like 56 titles. 
And that is a great deal of titles that you have to read and pitch and get into. But yeah, it's it's everything else. So that's sort of a hard question to answer because it's like the scope of what we do depends on interest abroad. And our workload, honestly, it's so hard to explain. Like, I'm working so hard for your book, but I also cannot chase down every single publisher to make sure that they tell me no or yes. But it's it's that all the time. So, and typically, I mean, we're... Like I said, it's just a thing that we do, but frontless titles, we are also selling the last catalog that we have. So that's effectively 112 titles that we actually have to be paying attention to at any given time, like fully. And then, of course, it's combing through the weird archives that we have in our heads being like, oh, dragon book about, you know, (laughs) a teenage girl. Like that's... Yeah. So your brain just always has to be a little bit on fire, but in a great way and in a terrible way at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's so important. I feel like I'm just a broken record at this point, but I'm going to keep saying it because I do think it's important to just make sure people know how vast the work is, because I mean, every four months you have a new front list, like a, a new season is coming out. So the churn is constant. So it's never it's never like you get like, oh, it's a slow time. Let's <laughs> let's take a break. Let's relax. Like, no, it's constant. It's always the books are always coming out. They used to tell me when I was scouting that there would be a summer lull. Where is that summer lull? I have never seen her. She has never been in my life because, yeah, no, as soon as we have stopped doing one fair, and like fairs aren't the be all and end all, we're still pitching all year round. But as soon as one fair ends, you're immediately scheduling for the next fair. And that is just a constant revolution of like, oh, God, things are happening. Oh, we're at a fair. This is great. Oh, no. Oh, God, we need to send all the things. Like, it's it's very much like a constant state of sustained action and focus. So, yeah, I would never say that my job, I, I know that there are some jobs in publishing in a wonderful way that you have moments of, oh, I had a very nice day where I had to find things to do. We never have to find things to do. There will always be three million things that we can't get to. (laughs) Yeah, I have to agree that this mythical summer break, the slow period in summer, I've only been in the industry for like two and a half years, but this is the third summer I've been in. Every single time, it's just everything's on fire. How are we going to get through this? Will we survive? Who knows? So I don't know who created this myth, where it came from, why it's still happening, but we've got to stop because it's not true. It's never going to be true unless like as an industry, we decide, hey, we're taking this month off. But that'll never happen. So (laughs) I mean, the like really tragic thing is that we deal with foreign publishers who do take a month off. Spain takes an entire month off. And then they just like, all right, see you in the fall. And you're like, oh, wait, I have things for you. And then they just run away. And then we get to be like, oh, cool. Everyone else is still awake. I am so deeply jealous of Spain and any other country that does that because I can't imagine taking a month off. (laughs) Anyway, we've gone on a tangent. Thank you so much for that answer. Moving to the next question. What is one thing that you wish you knew about publishing and or your role before you started working in the industry? 
yeah. So again, I totally fell into this role. Nobody told me about subrights. Nobody told me about rights in general. They didn't talk to me about how you could travel and read and talk to people from other countries. Wish I had known about it in the first place, which is what I'm thinking everyone is going to say. So that is one huge thing. The other thing that I wish I kind of knew was that publishing sort of kills your drive to like read new books, which again is talked about very much within this field. We talk about it all the time, like, man, I wish I could read that new thing, but my brain is full of children's books about, you know, singing. I can't, like, my brain just doesn't work that way anymore. So I've, I do have a workaround though. Like, it's not all doom and gloom. My workaround is I really thrive if I make myself a very targeted reading list. Like, if I'm like, I want to read 10 fantasy books that are classics, then I will Go out and I will do that because my brain can handle a task, but it cannot handle like, oh, there are so many great books out there. Can't do that anymore. Whereas when I was a kid, I'd just be like, oh, look at all these things. Like, no, you can't. As a person in publishing who just is constantly surrounded by words and things and stuff that you're not reading, that you want to be reading or should be reading, it just, yeah, you have to find a method for keeping your love of reading because otherwise you'll either go insane or you'll stop reading. Yeah, I've also mentioned this a couple times on the podcast, but I didn't, I wasn't reading for a while because of publishing. And then also even before that, because of my English degree, I was just like, I'm not reading for fun. This is horrible. So last year I made a pact with myself that I'd read a hundred books, which I did. And it was amazing, but I think I've read three books this year so far. (laughs) So I really like burned myself out. So I need to find like a happy medium. And I think that's true for most people in publishing because obviously we got into this industry because we love reading and we love books. So it is one of the greatest tragedies, I think, that like this industry does often kill our love of reading, at least in our personal lives. So I do, I think this is a thing we all need to do to like find that right balance that works for our own brains to allow us to still do the thing we love, but also continue doing the job we love. Yeah, it's it's tough. Okay, next question. If you were given the power, if someone came to you one day and they were like a huge publishing overlord who had all the power in the world, and they said, Hannah, for one day only, you can change anything about this industry however you want, what changes would you make? Okay, so again, hands down, it would be compensation for the work that we all do because you just said it. We have a million jobs and they all take a lot of brain power. And, they, you know, if you're going to pick something that's going to maybe be a detriment to your reading habits, <laughs> like you have to consider that. Pay is very important to keeping a well-rested and financially stable crowd of skilled workers. I would also say that publishing tends to be quite old school. And like the name of this podcast suggests, it is one of those industries where there are a lot of weird, archaic things that come up that really are a bar to us supporting the needs of both our customers and also providing literacy for a world that's in need right now. It's just, yeah, we're in dire need of supporting the people who are most at risk right now. So I would think that the biggest thing for me is if I could make any change in the industry, I would say that we should take more risks. And I think that that's both from like a sort of a corporate standpoint of staffing and figuring out compensation needs and things like that, because we are stuck and we always have this back and forth, I think, within the industry of like, can we do it? Why can't we do it? It feels like we really can. We just need to take risks and support our people. And then 
yeah, just also making, taking risks, like trying to do different mediums that kids are really invested in and like that would make access really easy for kids, like, you know, doing braille editions for more things and large print editions and things like that and things that just make it easier for the world to read, which this is what we all want anyway. So yeah, that's what I would change. Yeah, I think those are really excellent changes that should be made. It's always so interesting that publishing is so stodgy and like so stuck in its ways. And it seems like I'm not a business analyst. I don't know. I don't know how to make this industry more profitable or anything, but it just seems like there's so many spots where we could innovate, where we could make positive change for readers and for ourselves and for this industry as a whole. And no one wants to do it at the top level. And it's like, why don't we just do it? It seems like we so easily could. So yeah, I I completely agree. (laughs) Okay, this is the final official question of the episode. What is the best advice that you've received thus far in your career? Yeah, so I touched on it earlier, but I kind of wanted to like save my long-winded answer until now. But I would say that the biggest asset for me was just meeting people. Like talk to literally everyone that you possibly humanly can. I don't care who it is. Talk to your interns. Definitely talk to your interns because they are the future of publishing. You will meet them again. I don't care if it's, you know, at some random function and you're not their, you know, colleague or whatever, but they are so important to the work that we all do. Like, I mean, you've talked about getting to know different jobs so that we all appreciate each other and things. It's the same for, you know, for meeting your interns, meeting someone who does a job that's really different than yours. We all kind of are in this small industry and it really, it takes nothing to be kind to everyone and it really helps. Like I I have a group of friends who I started in the industry with and I didn't know if any of them were going to be quote unquote useful in my career, but you know, I met them and I liked them. And then all of a sudden, like I have a friend who's an agent and I have friends who are editors and I have, you know, I have friends who are in managing ed and foreign rights and all these different places. And when you make those connections, they'll be like, oh my gosh, I heard that this cool thing in the industry is happening or there's this event that I am going to, would you like to come to? And that kind of stuff like I know we've missed a bit of it we've missed a bit of a trek over the pandemic because of course but yeah it's just even if it's an email to be like oh my gosh ex-editor you published this amazing book and I love it and I'm so proud of the work that you do I think that that's just vitally important not only for you know your mental health their mental health but also for your career There's no bad thing that can come out of you meeting people. That is a huge piece of advice. And then I would also say for any industry and for any human on the planet, advocate for yourself. It is really hard to do sometimes in publishing because it is an industry that has a lot of sort of grandfathered in systems that are tough to beat. But you got to talk about yourself in a positive way in this industry and you have to talk yourself up. So advocate for yourself, fight for stuff, get excited about the work. And then that, yeah, that'll carry you, I think. Yeah, that's all really wonderful advice. Thank you so much for sharing that with the audience, with my audience. I say the audience, but there's like two people listening probably. But, you know, they're very important to me, those two people. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. Those were all of the pre-prepared questions I had. I have two more really quick questions for you before we log off for the day. Number one, 
Is there a place on the internet that you'd want to be followed if someone wanted to follow you on the internet? And then number two, do you have any upcoming titles or projects or sales that you're really excited about that you want to share with the audience? Yes, technically, you can find me at Han underscore Witch, W-I-C-H, on the Instagrams. Um, You can find me there. I'm not really on any other social media because I'm lame and I'm an older, older lady. But yes, uh, there. And then it's hard to talk about really close upcoming books that I'm selling right now. But I will say that we have some cool things. We have a very cool Murder, She Wrote novel coming out for the YA audience, which is hilarious to me. I also think it's the best thing ever. Like, who doesn't want to read about an old nanny who's solving crime and just being like, oh my, there's a murder. But did you check over there for the, the knife? I don't know. But so I I find that fascinating. I'm so stoked about that one. And then we, yeah, they're just, I mean, again, there's so many titles and I love so many of them. I would say that one of the ones that strikes a chord in my heart that I feel like was hard because of the pandemic, at least like from a subrights perspective, was this book called Wishes by Monty Thon and illustrated by Victor Nye. It is a really stirring picture book that is about sort of a family who is taking a boat journey who are refugees. And it's like, oh my gosh, sobbing. Because (laughs) the author and illustrator presented at a sales conference before the pandemic and just they started crying. We started crying. It was just the most moving and beautiful picture book. And It was tough because that's the kind of book that you need to show people and like shove in their face with a hard copy and be like, look at how incredible and sad and wonderful. Um, And we couldn't do that because pandemic. So, yeah, I'll say that. But it's kind of a backlist book. So I don't know if you want to put that. But (laughs) But, yeah, no, I think absolutely we should shout it out, especially because it got so impacted by COVID. I think people will need to find that book and cry about it with their loved ones. Okay, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. I'm always so shocked that people that don't know me are willing to talk to me for an hour on this podcast. So thank you so much for doing that. I had such a great time chatting with you. And I think this episode is going to be super helpful, especially for people who have never heard of and might be interested in working in subrights, because as we've said multiple times, it is kind of this foggy, confusing aspect of the industry. So thank you so much for taking the time to really shine a light on it. I mean... Honestly, thank you so much for doing this podcast. And like, I, you know, I listened to one episode when, you know, we, this had been suggested that I be a guest on here. I'd listened to one episode and you like casually mentioned subrights and I was like, that's it. I'm in. Cause like, you know about subrights and I, it, oh, it warms the cockles in my heart because I love the work that I do. I really love it. Like that is the thing that got me the job at Scholastic is loving this job. And I think if more people can know about subrights and rights and the underrepresented parts of the industry, like the better the world will be because it's more diverse opinions and thoughts on these very interesting books that we have coming up. So yeah, thank you for having me on and for doing this podcast. I think it's an amazing endeavor and I can't wait to see how it develops. Thank you for listening to this episode of Slush. Please visit slushpod.com where you'll find episode transcripts, free resources, and forms to submit questions and feedback. You can also follow Slush on Twitter at slushpod, and if you are so inclined, please rate and review the podcast.
Slush is hosted and produced by Eric Harden. Slush's logo was designed by Shelby Pack, and its theme music comes from the song Good Luck Charm by Olive Music. Any views expressed on the podcast are personal and do not reflect the opinions or interests of the hosts or guests' employers. Thank you again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.